Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Ida Vogg, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor US in Washington, DC. I'm India Bork, environment correspondent in London. It's Thursday, the 11th of August. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said Russian citizens should be banned from entering Western countries. The statement of Volodymyr Zelensky speaks for itself. Irrationality, in this case, goes through the roof. We can see it only in a very negative way. Any attempt to isolate Russians or Russia has no chance. Then we turn to Washington and the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed the Senate and is set to pass the House. To the tens of millions of young Americans who have spent years marching, rallying, demanding that Congress act on climate change, this bill is for you. Just how significant is this bill in tackling the climate crisis? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, you are in for a real treat this week because we have a very rare World Review appearance from India, our environment correspondent. (laughs) India, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Celebrity appearance. Okay, well, we are going to get to you, but first we are going to talk to Ido and we are going to speak about Russian travel. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, as we said at the top there, has said that Russian citizens should be banned from entering the so-called Western world. We should say that it's not just Zelensky who has made such a call. Estonia and Finland have called for the EU to end Russian tourist visas. Both countries are reportedly being used as a route for Russians getting around the EU ban on air travel from Russia. And both say that Russians should not be, Russian citizens should not be allowed to vacation in Europe while the country wages war in Ukraine. The EU is expected to continue to discuss this situation. But Ido, I really want to talk to you about was really Zelensky's request or call. Can you tell us a bit more about call to action and, and explain his reasoning? Zelensky, in an interview this week, called for all Russian citizens to be banned from entering Western countries. He said, quote, the most important sanctions are to close the borders because the Russians are taking away someone else's land. And he justified this because he said the Russian people picked the Putin government and they're not fighting it, not arguing with it, not shouting at it. And so uh, according to this reasoning, all Russian citizens should be banned from entering Western countries, so, you know, the US, the EU, Canada, the UK, and so on. There's many a a thought that jumps into my head on hearing this, but I 
would be curious to get your thoughts. I mean, I bluntly think he's wrong. And I think he's wrong in his reasoning and I think he's wrong in his conclusions. So start with the with the reasoning. So start with the reasoning. He says that the Russian people picked the Putin government. This is just not true. Or at least it's not true in any kind of conventional conventional understanding of popular legitimacy and a kind of democratic mandate. There haven't been elections in Russia which would qualify as free and fair by Western standards for at least two decades, possibly ever. Even so, the elections that have, quote-unquote, occurred in Russia have become steadily more ridiculous over Putin's more than two decades in power. So, for example, in last year's elections to the Duma, which is Russian's parliament, one independent analysis had it that fully 50% of the votes cast were just fraudulent. It was just false, basically, faked. And so pretending that this type of political system means that the Russian people chose Putin is, is frankly laughable. And so what about the conclusions that Russians are not contesting the Putin regime, they're not arguing with it, they're not protesting against it? Again, it's just not true. Hundreds of thousands of Russians in total have protested since the war began. 16,000 have been arrested since the invasion in February, according to Ovidir Info, which is a human rights group, people continue to protest against the war, despite the immense risks to them personally. They know how harshly dissent is repressed in Russia. They know that if they are caught by the police, they risk torture, they risk, in some cases, sexual abuse, they risk very long prison sentences, and yet they continue to protest. They also know that the while they're protesting, they're almost certainly not going to shorten the war by a single second, and they continue to turn out. And I would ask the people who subscribe to this idea of collective responsibility to ask themselves what they would do in a situation in which they lived in an authoritarian country and they had a government like that, and they knew that the consequences to them personally of a protest which was not going to change anything, would they go out and protest against a war? Maybe they would. But also clearly the costs are a lot higher than they would be for people in democratic countries, which I imagine is the case for most of our listeners. I think some point to the fact that, okay, well, that's a minority. To my mind, it's sort of, yes, the majority of Russians support Putin. And because we shouldn't pretend that it's a country of like liberal members of the opposition. But even if, let's say, 70% support Putin and support the war, that's thousands and thousands of people that you're writing off locking in Russia, essentially, for this ban. So I just wanted to, to note that, that we, we, we actually don't need to overstate opposition to Putin to say that a blanket ban is a questionable thing to do morally and logically. Yeah. And I mean, look, even if you think that a ban is the right decision because of collective responsibility or something like that, in purely kind of practical terms, you also have to think about how, how do we want to live with Russia now, after the war, after Putin? There is always going to be a Russia, there are always going to be Russians, but there isn't always going to be a Putin. And purely from the sake of our own interests as the West, also for Ukraine, for the other neighbours that Putin seeks to subjugate and bring into Russia's basically neo-empire, we should seek to bring the Russians who might be amenable to a more democratic Russia, a Russia which respects the international order, which lives in peace with its neighbours. We should seek to bring them on side. We should show them our enemy is not the Russian people, but Putin and the Putin regime and Putin's imperialism. 
that our democratic system is better than their dictatorship and that we are not against those people, but against the dictatorship that seeks to subjugate Russia's neighbours and which is committing the terrible atrocities in Ukraine. We can't guarantee that Putinism will end with Putin, but we should at least try to build bridges with those who in time could lead a different Russia. I want to note two other things. First is, I'll be very curious to hear how various countries, if they do reply, reply to this, every person on this call is from a country against which another country could bring claims and claim aggression. Like Americans, yes, but I think if you are British or you are European and you think that your country has not committed some grievous ill against another in not too distant history, I would encourage you to disabuse yourself of that notion. And I'm not saying that the war is horrible, and I'm not saying that that it isn't different and unique. But, you know, I, I think that Americans, for example, should ask themselves if they would be comfortable being banned from traveling because of the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan or the withdrawal from Afghanistan or any number of other things the United States has done. And that's in a, a democracy, even with the electoral college. And the other thing is that I do understand where he's coming from. Right. Like it's very easy for me to sit here in Washington and say, yes, this is horrible. This is morally and logically fallacious and, and so on and so forth. He's the leader of a country that's been attacked by another country. I, I, I do. I do understand. But there's no way to say this without sounding condescending. That does not in and of itself make it the right decision. It's so hard. I mean, my position, especially having spent 2019 living in Hong Kong when the protests were happening, I would always be very careful to say, you know, the problem was the Chinese government and not the Chinese people. Uh, it's something I always try to stand by and apply wherever the conflict in the world is, you know, always it, it's the government who is who is leading a people in whatever policies they're enacting. That said, it is so tricky in countries that have such severe internal propaganda and limited information getting to what people actually know. And sometimes you do also wonder, you know, until a nation experiences the fact that they cannot travel abroad or something like that, do they actually appreciate the kind of extent to which the rest of the world is sees their government as problematic? So I suppose that's an interesting question. Thanks for that, India. Ido has a piece on this further. If you, if you would like to read his thoughts at greater length, and we'll put that in the show notes as we usually do on this podcast. So switching gears now. And this is, I mean, it's, it's, there's no elegant way to make this transition. It's a real, a real switching of the gears. <laughs> anyway, the Senate finally passed a significant piece of Biden's domestic agenda. Once known as Build Back Better, the new version of this legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the product of intense negotiation between Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin, a moderate Democrat from West Virginia, is being hailed as a major victory in the fight against climate change. India. Tell us exactly how significant this is really as a piece of legislation to tackle the climate crisis. And we should say that at time of recording, it, has, it isn't actually law yet. It still has to go to the House. But both progressives and Democratic House moderates have signified that they are on board. So it should, barring you know, some American political disaster, which is not out of the realm of possibility, it should happen. So how significant is this vis-a-vis climate change? Firstly, it's just so nice to be speaking on a podcast once for a 
good reasons rather than some the latest dreadful yeah. news it's genuinely yes. relieving the bill is definitely not perfect and we can go into why it's not perfect later and many people are pointing that out but i think my overriding emotion right now is huge relief that america has passed this has stepped up that there will be something fingers crossed in legislation to transform america's industrial policy really it's an industrial policy act that just is gonna completely pick up and shift industry onto a green clean future which is the only future that is kind of viable right now i was visiting my partner's family in the us the other week and i was blown away by the kind of back-to-back suvs you know these huge great cars on the raceways and it is drive through everything culture was i think what i came away feeling yeah india came to this country and was shocked and appalled at our infrastructure and our reliance on automobiles and our shameful public transit <laughs> so are you listening if you were if you were in washington shaping policy listening to this you're embarrassed <laughs> all right india what are the most significant pieces do you think of this legislation from a climate perspective so the the important technical fact to remember or to take away is that something called the rhodium group has estimated that overall the bill will reduce us emissions by 31 to 44% that's on 2005 levels by 2030 so it will fall by potentially as much as 44% by 2030 and that's very near the us paris agreement pledge of reducing by 50% by 2030 so that's a huge advance on what it would be without the bill which has been estimated as just 24 to 35% so it's a big leap forward in what can be achieved in terms of reducing emissions politically i think a lot of people or democrats have found it very very moving to, to both because of the climate crisis and actually getting action on it and because of their deadlock they've experienced in the senate for so long on that 50-50 split and managing to break that I think has been huge. One one senator Brian Schatz was apparently choking back tears when the bill passed and saying he can can look my kids in the eye and say we're really doing something about climate now. A senior advisor to the US climate envoy John Kerry, he described it as the boldest climate package in US history and maybe the most consequential climate step in history period. So big claims, but it is it is a big thing. <laughs> All right. So now that we've made those big claims and built up <laughs> what Democrats did for once, <laughs> I guess I should be like less grouchy about them, given that they just did do something. But <laughs> nevertheless, let's now take them down a peg. What are the ways in which this falls short? So there's many good parts, and I can list some of them in a minute. But the cautionary response is that ultimately, the kind of deal with the devil that they made to get it through was that they've still given quite a lot of concessions to the oil and gas industry that includes new leases for oil and gas production and things like new leases for oil and gas have to be offered before approving rights away for renewable energy there's going to be support for coal and gra- gas facility upgrades which is probably a concession to Joe Manchin who we might talk more about but he's the West Virginia se- senator who is obviously very concerned about the future of the coal industry and it also exempts most of the fossil fuel industry from methane fees so there's a lot in there that it is that concession and as many community groups and environmental lawyers and campaigners have pointed out 
you're not going to solve the climate crisis if you're still supporting and extending the life of fossil fuels. Bernie Sanders quoted someone as saying it was climate suicide, and he later called it called the bill a, a modest step forward that he was happy to support, but quite kind of quite lukewarm response from him. And then finally, you offered to list the good things, so I will take you up on that offer. What jumps out is like, oh, there we go. <laughs> well, I can talk about some of the technical good things it includes. And then there's also an interesting kind of what does it mean in terms of inspiring action around the world. But in terms of what the bill includes, there's going to be lots more investment in clean technology. There's $4 billion that going towards combating the mega drought that's currently plaguing the Western states of America. There's oil companies will, will have to pay more if they do want to drill on federal land. It's going to reverse a ban on wind energy leases. There's going to be tax credits for making your home more energy efficient. So things like installing heat pumps, which we desperately need to do in the UK as well. Also support for buying electric vehicles, which is a very interesting example of something the bill is doing more generally, which is trying to shift the green supply, global supply chain. So all those kind of cobalt and lithium metals that are essential to things like solar panels, making sure that more of it is produced and manufactured in the US or in countries that have free trade deals with the US, rather than in places like China, where obviously relations are increasingly tricky. It's interesting because it's, it's sort of a throwback Americana way of approaching this existential crisis. Mm-hmm. Right, like American manufacturing and restoring America, like you could you could sort of see it as a. I, I don't actually mean this as a criticism. It's like a 20th century political response to a 21st century, not just political, again existential problem. I love that summary of it. A 20, yeah, I love that. That's a great line. Exactly. Like, <laughs> well, first of all, America is is so bad and so behind on this issue. If you speak to really anybody in this space, they will say that we have not done nearly enough to make up for our historic or indeed present role in polluting the world, just to say it as plainly as possible. So first of all, should other countries be looking to America for inspiration? And secondly, do you think that this legislation will encourage them to do that? Yes, I I really think it's impressive and I really hope it's a kick up the backside to British politicians and the Tory party at the moment who are in the leadership race, you know, not talking in nearly these kind of ambitious terms about what acting on climate change can do for improving people's quality of life and, and importantly, reducing their energy bills, which are going to be insanely high this year. And this bill will do that for Americans. It, it's very interesting in terms of the relationship with China. So China has previously rightly kind of moaned about the US, there's lack of ability to pass legislation to get things moving on climate. Previously, Biden and Obama before him have had to rely very much on executive orders, which really worryingly, as you may have mentioned already on the podcast, the Supreme Court has kind of squashed earlier this year. So it's so relieving that they've managed to get some legislation through. It means that China can no longer say, oh, well, we are justifying not going as fast as we could because look how slowly America's going. So it removes that problem. But I wouldn't say it's going to create more collaboration between China and America on climate matters at the minute. China recently suspended climate dialogue with the US over Taiwan. And so with this bill as well, it's there's a 
definite picture of you know the big superpowers doubling down on domestic production and making this kind of nationalist movement rather than a collaborative international one. And Ido, do you think this is relevant at all to the conversation happening in Europe now about Russian energy dependence and and the cold winter that's coming in Germany and et cetera? Yeah, I mean, everyone I keep talking to about the coming energy shortages that we are likely to see in Europe, pretty much everyone I talk to um, says that it really shows the imperative of speeding up the energy transition and increasing investment in renewables in particular, so as to avoid the the situation of being reliant on a geopolitical rival um, in future years. And because bluntly renewables are a good way to, of assuring energy independence. And so obviously that's not something that can happen immediately, but um, increased in investment in renewables does. Uh, there's obviously the environmental imperative, which India has spoken about very cogently, but this year there's also the additional imperative of the geopolitics of it, which which has become much more salient. Well, India has a piece on the climate component of this legislation, which we will put in the show notes. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And for now, we are going to move to a section that we like to call You Love Scouts. Thank you, Ida. So, this question I really enjoy. It is from a listener who wanted to know what in the heck is a Votorama and will we have more of them? Okay, so the way that this legislation passed the Senate is through a process called reconciliation. Reconciliation is a budgetary procedure in the U.S. Senate. Um, if your legislation is a budget issue or can be sort of, if you can reasonably pretend that it's a budget issue, um, you can go through the reconciliation process, which means you only need 50 votes. 51 is the tiebreaker vice president, which we had in this case, um, and not the normal 60. A votorama is a process within that budgetary procedure, and within the vote-a-rama, senators can propose an unlimited number of amendments. So then you briefly debate them, and then you vote on them in rapid succession. So, you know, you had Republican senators saying, like, I had to fly back to Washington for this. First of all, congratulations, that's your job. Second of all, yes, in part because of amendments that you were proposing to this legislation. So when you when you hear about like the marathon voting sessions where they vote on one after one amendment after another, that's a voterama. That is what we had. Will we have another? We almost certainly will at some point, sooner or later. Voterama lingers. Um, no, yes, we will have it because this is how our system of government is set up. It just makes me want to dance around. <laughs> it wants to make you want to dance well. Sure. I mean, that's not exactly that's not how I feel when I think about the U.S. Senate, but but maybe you know maybe I should take inspiration. Listen, I think that our British listeners, you know, understand they have their Parliament with with its uh, with its committees and rules and specifications, and so do we. Now, might I argue that some of ours are too arcane and should be I don't know overhauled entirely? Yes, I would. <laughs> Anyway, um, that's Votorama. Thank you so much for your question, listener. On a related note, I did enjoy, I felt very sorry for all the senators sitting through the night on the Inflation Reduction Act, but I did enjoy some of the sunrise photos they were posting on Twitter after it. So yes, silver lining. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions and you can send more in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or tweets at Emily or Ido. That's all the time we have for today. Join us Monday for our interview episode with journalist Nick Bryant on America's Decline. 
If you are a regular World Review listener and you have not already subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've already subscribed, thank you so much. We have one last ask, which is to please also rate us five stars, five stars only, and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producers have been Mae Robson and Clara Abernethy. Thank you for listening and until next time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.